Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Tonight, it's a new episode of All Rise, the legal drama where one judge is shaking up the system. When I take the bench, I'm taking a vow to fight for justice. One case at a time. Your Honor. We're going to trial. Simone Misick is Judge Lola Carmichael. Up on that bench. Everything is different. A new episode of All Rise. Freedom is at stake. It's important. Followed by a new episode of Bull, tonight at 9, 8 central on CBS. BuzzFeed reporters Anthony Cormier and Jason Leopold couldn't believe what they were seeing. Secret government documents showing suspicious banking transactions all over the globe. Gold, diamonds, oil, every sector of the economy is besmirched by this dirty money. Get the full story on suspicious activity inside the FinCEN files. A new podcast available on Radio.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. All episodes are available now. FNC, welcome into the 6 o'clock hour, the final hour of today's Wilson and Parcel. We do have the final drive coming up in 40 minutes here on the show. Uh, very excited for all of that, but you might not. If you're a Hornets fan and you're sitting there and you want to watch some NBA bubble action, this might not be the playoffs for you because we saw Kemba Walker last night who was maybe not the best thing on the court as uh, he's kind of shaking off some some rust coming off a knee injury, but he he did get his first playoff win since 2016 last night as the Celtics stopped 76ers. And then the guy who could still be on the roster right now and who might have helped Kemba stay on the roster, Josh, uh, Donovan Mitchell dropped 57 in Utah's loss to Denver and uh, this could just both both guys could end up going deeper into the playoffs here. This could have just been the tip of the iceberg for Hornets fans. I know it's just I mean, think about it. There's another alternate reality where Kemba Walker and Donovan Mitchell form one of the best backcourts in the NBA. People are having debates on national talk shows. Would you rather have Dame and CJ McCollum or would you rather have Kemba and Donovan Mitchell? That's a real conversation that could have happened if the Hornets had drafted Mitchell instead of Malik Monk. It didn't happen. And now Donovan Mitchell is one of the best young guards in the league. He balled out yesterday, 57 points, the third most points in a playoff game ever behind two guys, Michael Jordan, who went for 63 in the famous Boston game. And then Elgin Baylor, that's it. Donovan Mitchell's third. It was an unreal performance. Now, to be fair to Mitchell here, Mitchell also had the blunder in that game that lost him the game. They were up four, under two minutes to go. Donovan Mitchell walks the ball up the floor and commits an eight-second violation, turns the ball over to Denver, and Denver ends up hitting a three on the next possession, cuts it to one. They go back and forth. Denver ends up sending it to overtime and winning easily. But Mitchell and Kemba together would have been one of the best backcourts in the league, period. And Kemba would have stayed. Kemba Walker does not sign in Boston if Mitchell and Kemba are together because that's a playoff team in the Eastern Conference. And now all of a sudden there's a vision in Charlotte. There's a future in Charlotte. When Kemba Walker walked out of Charlotte, it was because he had been here for eight, nine years. And there was no point in that stretch where Charlotte had a clear and distinct future where that Kemba could buy into and think 
I, I can win here long term. They've, they've never had that. Uh, even when they made the playoffs in 2016. So, yeah, it's frustrating watching uh, Donovan Mitchell do his thing. And then, you know, I, I'm rooting for Kemba, but it's, you know, a little disheartening to see Kemba Walker pick up a big win in Boston where he had two guys on his team that are under 24 years old putting up 28, 29, 30 points in the win. Well, and you wonder if the Hornets had drafted Mitchell, not only, you know, are we talking about Donovan Mitchell and Kemba Walker, you're also wondering, would that have been able to afford you the opportunity to add another player to the mix right and 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 whether that's in sign and trade whether that's trading you know draft collateral there every year there are opportunities to add to the mix whether in free agency or otherwise you got to think donovan mitchell and kemba walker would be a hell of a lot more appetizing for anybody wanting to go ahead and take their next step in their career given the fact that it is in the eastern conference and that it might be a little bit easier to to go ahead and get to the top of the East than it is if you go out West. I, I think you look across, Josh, the, the, the big oopsies, the draft oopsies for the Hornets. And there are a lot in the last decade. You could make a case that three times they passed up on guys who were damn near perfect to play next to Kemba at the two guard. One is Bradley Beal in 2002. They took uh, you know MKG over him. Then you've got Devin Booker in 2015. The uh, the the uh, let's say there's a Frank Kaminsky draft. Yep. And then you have Donovan Mitchell. I'll be honest with you. I look at each one of those guys. I, I like the I, the Beal ideal because you you would have had sustained success with those two earlier on, and who knows how that can change things when you get guys in the same backcourt winning over the course of four or five years. But I mean. Kemba and Booker would have been a dream here. Kemba and Booker would have been great. Kemba, all three of them would have been great. I mean, just having a, a, a star two guard to play alongside Kemba would have helped him so much. I mean, he never really had that at any point when he was in Charlotte. I mean, briefly, Batum was a, was a reliable wing threat. Courtney Lee actually had a heck of a run in the second half of 2016 when they made the trade for him. Uh, that was actually the, the best move Rich Cho ever made was trading for Courtney Lee at the deadline in that year they made the playoffs. But Kevin really lacked that that second score in the backcourt. All three of those guys that you mentioned, Beal, uh, Booker, and of course Mitchell, are all guys that can go get you 30 if you need them to. Kemba, throughout his career, constantly was battling through taking the best perimeter defender every single night, having to have the ball in his hands constantly, top 10% in the NBA in usage every single year because he didn't have anybody else that he could go to, really on anywhere on the floor, but especially in the backcourt. You know, I think about Beal, and the one thing that's that's held Beal back in Washington, or that's held Washington back, hasn't really held Beal back, so to speak, but has held Washington back since Beal has been there, is the fact that him and John Wall have really had a bit of a struggle and a power struggle over who's the face of the franchise, who's the go-to guy. And I don't know that you would have had that same concern in Charlotte because, look, I'm not saying John Wall's a bad guy, but Kimba Walker is happy to defer to other guys. He'll take on the, the load if he needs to. He'll he'll put a, he'll take 35 shots if he if he has to in a game to win. But Kimba is happy to see others succeed. He's not the type of guy that's going to try to battle and make it. Oh, this is my team. This is uh, this is, I, I run this place. Uh, I'm the franchise guy. You do as I say. No, this is his city or was his city. It was not just his team though. Right. So I think that the Beal Kemba dynamic would have been much more fruitful than the wall Beal dynamic, which led to a lot of the problems in Washington. It goes beyond that, but that led to a lot of the problems. So you almost wonder another reality. 
how much better Beal's career would be right now, or at least in terms of team success, had he come to Charlotte and played alongside a better teammate in Kemba than he had than he's had for the last eight years in John Wall. It's a sight to behold, and I don't mean like the last two years. I know, I know, you know. There's the Shea Gilgis Alexander. Uh, keeping him over uh, making the trade, which got you Miles Bridges. Uh, people are going to start saying the Michael Porter Jr. thing. All of those are fair. But if if we take out the cup check era of this to this point, and you put up the first eight years of this decade, I mean, you know, the, the Vonla year where right after that, you've got Zach Levine going and TJ Warren. Either one of those guys would have been better players for this team than what Noah Vonla ended up being you know, off the roster inside uh, the, the next year. You mentioned we've talked about Beal and Kaminsky and, and obviously the Boston trade down. Here's another one. They took Tobias Harris with the 20th pick in the year they drafted Kemba Walker and they traded that pick to, to be able to move up. Uh, the eventual trade was for Bismack Biombo. I, like, while Tobias Harris is a really good player, I don't think he's a great NBA player. You don't? To, to, well, I, Tobias I Harris mean is, is pretty damn good. I don't think he's like a friend. I don't think he's like Devin Booker. I don't think he's a Bradley okay. Beal, guys of that ilk. He's a cut below that. But Tobias Harris would have been another great player to have around uh, Kemba Walker and certainly better than, God bless him, Bismack Biombo. Yeah, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of misses in the draft, no question. Um, you know, that Vonla deal... Um, I don't take a ton of issue with that because they flipped it into a guy that helped them get to the playoffs. Now, the contract they gave Batum after the fact was, of course, a mess and one of the worst contracts in the league. But they did flip Vonla for Batum, and that was a good deal at the time. They just extended Batum, and it became a mess. So I don't really have a ton of issue with that. I mean, let's face it, TJ Warren, until two weeks ago, nobody cared about TJ Warren. Zach Levine has been a net negative his entire career. He just scores a lot of points on bad uh, basketball teams. So I don't really take issue with Vonla as much as a lot of these other picks, you know, you mentioned Michael Porter Jr., which was a couple years ago. Porter is emerging as a legitimate plus wing in Denver. He was averaging 20 plus points a game. He was shooting ridiculous numbers, which is not sustainable, but he was shooting 46% from three in the regular season uh, bubble in or the NBA restart, whatever you want to call it in Orlando. Michael Porter Jr. had a ton of injury concerns coming out. He missed his entire freshman season with a back injury. If it weren't for that, he would have gone in the top five. There was, uh, you know, the Clippers had two opportunities to take him. They passed up on him twice. I still think that, you know, Porter would have been a great pick in Charlotte at the time simply because Charlotte wasn't in win now mode. I would have loved to have seen Porter here. I wasn't banging the drum for Porter at the time, but as much as I like Miles Bridges and as much as Shea, Gil uh, Shea Gilgis Alexander, who I think is uh, the cornerstone of the future for the Oklahoma City Thunder, as much as I like those guys, I would actually rather have Michael Porter here as more of a long-term project. And it looks like it's paying dividends already in Denver. I, I, there's been a lot of misses, you know, Mitchell's the big one that they talk about. And for good reason, because there was division in the, in the front office on who they should draft. Bam out bio went one yeah. pick after Donovan Mitchell as well. And I'm watching out bio right now. He's tearing it up against Indiana. As we speak in the playoffs out of bio is an all-star out of bio was, uh, is a candidate for most improved somehow over Devontae Graham, but still a candidate for most improved and looks like he's going to be the big in Miami for a while. They really like him and he would have been great in here beside Kimball Walker or even beside Devontae Graham. Now Bam Adebayo was another one that they missed on and he's a Carolina kid. It would have been awesome. Adebayo, at least you can look at that and say, had they taken him probably wouldn't have stopped Kemba from leaving, 
But certainly this year, he would have made a huge difference for a team that one of their real problems is why we're talking about potentially taking James Wiseman if uh, if the Hornets get up in the draft early enough. Exactly. I mean, they, they have not... The Hornets, I mean, ever since I can remember, they have not had athleticism in the front court that... Outside of Cody Zeller, of course. Right. I mean, there's, there's, of course, Cody. And Cody's a better athlete than I think people want to give him credit for. He's just a little awkward sometimes. He's not Michael Doliak. But, but, uh, yeah, no, he's definitely not. He's not a complete... Or Andrew LeClerc. He's not... He's... Wow, what a pull from you. Uh, Going back to the uh, old uh, Orlando Magic days. I'm quite good at pulling. Um, But, you know, with, with Cody... Cody doesn't have the same sort of vertical ability to protect the rim, get above the rim on pick and rolls and stuff like that. It really hurts them. And Adebayo is a good face-up player just like Cody. But, but yeah, Bam, Bam isn't the kind of guy you're right. Bam was not going to keep Kimball Walker in Charlotte, but Bam and Devontae Graham, that's a heck of a, a of a point guard and a big combination. Bam and Graham. I mean, the marketing possibilities are endless. That That's the other thing that you haven't thought about. Here's Okay, and if you had Bam on this team, because this team way surpassed our expectations for him. If you had Bam on this team this year with the way that he's looked, this team probably is in the bubble. Like I would say there are two or three games better, which is what they would have ended up needing to be over that the god-awful Washington team. It would be close. It would definitely be close. I like Bam. I mean, three, four wins in a 60-game stretch is a lot for one player to add. But, yeah, it, it would be very, very close because they missed it by – what was it? Two games behind Washington. It was something. It was something pretty close. So yeah, I mean, Bam Adebayo. Let's face it, was an All Star. Now a lot of the credit goes to the Heat coaching staff. I mean, Eric Spolstra has done a great job with a lot of those young players. A lot of people aren't talking about Miami, and I know that they're going to try to get into the mix for Giannis potentially next off season. But I just love what they've got right now. I mean, they developed Bam Adebayo. Duncan Robinson is one of the best young sharpshooters in the game. Tyler Hero is a phenomenal rookie. Another guy who went right after P.J. Washington in the draft. I love P.J. And I'm not necessarily saying they should have gone in the other route. Because P.J. I think is going to be a really good player for the Hornets. But Tyler Hero is special. And, and what they've done in Miami with Hero and Bam and those guys is... It's pretty impressive. I actually think that Miami is the kind of place that's a great blueprint for what Charlotte can become. Take a lot of young guys. Nobody really knows much about them. Develop them. Create a good young core and make it an attractive destination for maybe a mid-level free agent to come in in a couple of years and help you get, uh, you know, top half of the Eastern Conference. I just keep hearing it. Graham to Bam for the slam. I mean, it rhymes. It just it just rolls off the tongue. That's a, that's a, you would be you are like Vin Scully. Thank it you. Just, it just comes. It just comes naturally. Bam, I've said that about bam, myself for a while. Grand Bam for the slam. Grand Bam slam. Thank you, Graham. ma'am. Yes, yes, that's exactly where I want to go. Grand Bam slam. Thank you, ma'am. You know what? I take back anything I've ever said about you in the negative. That was perfect. Thank you. You're welcome. That is uh, the question. Here is if if, uh, if the Hornets had drafted Donovan Mitchell, how different do the Hornets look right now? And in sports. You should celebrate the good things, and you should tear down the bad things. That's not what happened in baseball last night. Sports Radio FNZ. Sports Radio FNZ. The final drive coming up in 20 minutes here. 
on uh, on the show. Uh, in the meantime, we like we like fun things, right, Josh? I, I didn't dream that we like fun things in sports. Me, yes, fun. Fun is good. Okay. We like fun. Yeah, I, hundred fun, sir. So, like home runs are good, right? Home runs? Yeah. Well, Hacksaw's distracting me. Home runs? Yeah, home runs are good. We like those. Okay, so Four we baggers. like home runs. All right, so, so we're just so everybody out there is clear. This is a pro home run show and a pro yeah, we like fun dinners. show. Somebody needs to wake up. Not just the Texas Ranger. Uh, and and the Rangers, not just one of them, the Texas Rangers, they also need to wake up Padres manager Jace Tingler. His name is Jace Tingler. We'll get to that at some point in the segment. But last night, Fernando Tatis with with uh, with the Padres up ten to three in the eighth inning. It was a three zero count. There was a pitch by the Texas Rangers grooved right down the plate. And Fernando Tatis drove it about 5,000 feet. And what happened after that was that Manny Machado was the next batter up, and he got plunked. And after the game, Chris well, they Woodward... Th- they threw at him. He didn't get they, hit. They threw at him, yeah. correct. Yeah. But Chris Woodward, the Texas Rangers manager, said that he felt like Tatis had violated an unwritten rule for for swinging at a 3-0 pitch when they were up 10 to 3 and in, in hitting the uh, the ridiculously long grand slam then Jace Tingler came out and said that yes uh the Fernando Tatis Jr had missed the sign and that it was it's a learning experience for him guys one seven runs even in the 8th inning it can come back it's not as if the rangers stopped attempting to play here but the idea that Fernando Tatis did something wrong there is no mercy rule in baseball. This really pissed me off last night. This is the kind of thing that baseball has its own, its head up its own ass about, and it's not good for baseball. Yeah, there's no mercy rule in pro sports. This idea that you can't run it up when there are grown men getting paid hundreds of thousands and in most cases, millions of dollars to play a game, you play the full nine innings, you play the full four quarters, you play the full three periods, and if you're getting humiliated, that's on you. It's your job. Nobody's going to take it easy on you. And to your point, it was 10-3. I mean, I remember last week I was sweating out a Diamondbacks Rockies bet I had when the Diamondbacks scored five runs in the ninth. They didn't win. But it's more than it's very possible. It's not probable. It's not even it's not even 25 percent probable, but it's at least possible that a team down seven could mount a miraculous comeback over the last inning. So there's no reason why Tati should have taken the the 3-0 pitch. There's I don't care about any unwritten rule. If he missed a take sign, he missed a take sign. But for his own manager, that's the other part about this. It blows me away. This is not just just to, just to reiterate to the people. Jace Tingler, the the manager of the Padres. Tatis plays for the Padres. His own manager is the one in the postgame saying that he screwed it up, that he's got to learn from it. No, you bury them. You've got a chance. If they're going to groove a pitch down the middle 3-0 and you think you've got a swing at it, take a swing and and let the the Rangers suffer the consequences. It was one of the most... I, one thing I can't stand about baseball is all the unwritten rules that they try to hold to some as some sort of sacrilege. In no other sport is there anything close to this kind of rule. 
I, I just don't understand. If a team's up 35 and they throw a touchdown with four minutes to go, do, does the opposing team just run over to the sideline and drill a guy in the back, like spear a guy? No. So why should this exist in baseball? I don't understand it. Yeah, Tingler looks like a dope to me for what he had to say. And, and you know, I said this, I said this earlier, that to me, Dusty Baker knows he's full of crap. Dusty Baker is one of the almost old school. He played in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. He is an old school manager. He believes in policing themselves. He believes in doing things the right way. And and this offseason, he joined a team that cheated, that got caught cheating, and that there were no repercussions on. And Dusty Baker, if he were a manager on the other any one of the other 29 teams in baseball, would be instructing his guys to throw at the Houston Astros. But he's the Astros manager. So you know what he does? He lies through his teeth and tries to protect his guys. Because that's what you do. Even when your your guys are in the wrong, you stick up for your guys. Fernando Tatis did what millions, I mean millions of baseball players have done. Which is they that you usually get a green light on a 3-0 pitch, whether you're up 10-3 or you're down 10-3. And this idiot for the Rangers, who looked like baby Bartolo Colon. He is, he is one ham sandwich away from being in the Bartolo Colon weight class. And he grooved a pitch down the middle because he thought he was going to get a free pitch. Bleep that guy. That's the participation trophy in baseball. You don't get free pitches. And Jace Tingler, even though he didn't agree with it, should have lied and then talked with Tatis behind the the, the plate or be, be in the clubhouse. I totally agree. It was it's dumb. It's stupid. I can't believe it was even a controversy. The and the fact that the manager comes out and talks about it the way he did is why it's become a story. If the manager doesn't speak out and, and kind of condemn his own player, this probably isn't a story today. Uh, it, it, look, is it controversial in the, in the world of baseball? Sure. But nationally, when you have a manager who calls out his own player for hitting a home run in a seven-run game in the in the top of the eighth inning, I mean, the Rangers had two more innings of at-bats. I mean, they only got one more run, but they had six more outs uh, to get those seven runs. Again, probably a 3% chance of it happening. That's probably high, but it is possible. And I don't understand why his own manager had to be the one to try to put the blame on his player, throwing his player under the bus as poor leadership in my eyes. Now the pitcher has been suspended three games and the manager has been suspended one game. Uh, Fernando Tatis jr. Not suspended. It was weird to me that I saw beat reporters having that clarification. If Fernando Tatis was suspended for hitting a grand slam, <laughs> I what? I might have I might have flown to New York to burn down the headquarters of Major League Baseball if that had happened. It didn't happen, so I didn't have to do it. So, you know, burn this tape. Uh, in the meantime, equally, maybe actually not even equally, probably even more frustrating last night in the NBA was Kristaps uh, Porzingis and the Mavericks were up by five points. Now, Stapps had gotten a uh, a a technical earlier in the game for basically nothing. It was a very, very light technical. I have no idea why he got in the first half, or, or rather there wasn't a description that I thought befitted a technical. And then with that five-point lead, with nine minutes to go in the third quarter, Chris Porzingis got another technical for, for basically stepping into what was just a tense discussion in, in, involving Luka Doncic. But quite frankly, he didn't. He didn't really do anything, and he ended up getting tossed because of it. This was, 
Whereas the Tatis thing is stupid baseball etiquette. You can't convince me. The Clippers might have still won that game. You can't convince me, though, that throwing out the second-best player on the Mavericks with nine minutes to go in the third quarter when they have a five-point lead didn't swing this game. Of course it did. I mean, of course it did. I mean, having Porzingis on the floor d- turns the Mavericks from a real seven seed into a, a team that's probably a top-four team in the West. I mean, D- Dallas, as the season evolved this year, became one of the best teams in the Western Conference. They just got off to a slow start, and with a team that's young and has a lot of new pieces, it took them a little bit of time. But that that was a game they could have won, and I, I really do think, that, I mean, while the Clippers should get through this series, it should probably get through it in five, maybe six games, when you don't have home court advantage, there's a real opportunity for a team like Dallas that's better than your average seven seed to at least make things interesting in this series against the Clippers. And when the officials are going to call soft, and I mean I mean, cookie dough soft text like the second one he got. I actually thought the first one was was fine, but to call the second one on Przingis when it was not even really Przingis that was involved. Luca gets tied up with Marcus Morris. Morris is the one who kind of can't let Luca go. Luca then gets kind of in Morris's face. They're the ones going at it. Przingis doesn't even really do anything. Just kind of gets in the middle of a scrum doesn't escalate the situation despite the explanation that the referees gave you cannot send a guy out the referees know the situation they know that Przingis already has a tech they know a second one is going to send him out you can you have to have better discretion than that as a ref the referees changed the course of that game it which in turn changed the course of that series and I hate that for Dallas because that is a team that while I don't think they're going to beat the Clippers could absolutely push this series to five or six and scare who I think is the best team in the Western Conference, and they got robbed last night. I'm not saying they would have won because there was plenty of time left in that game, but they were robbed of an opportunity to win because of the officials, and that's a shame. I'm a huge homer for for Doncic and and Kristaps Porzingis, so I, I do believe they've got a bright future. It's not just about them. The the Clippers come into this not having played a lot of basketball together. This this could hypothetically come down. It not well, not hypothetically. It's going to be a seven game series, but the series could very well you come, to, come down to this play. I think it could. I I, I think it's definitely going to be seven. Oh no no no! What I oh. meant was max. It's going to oh, be seven. Oh. But uh, this is the kind of thing that is going to come back to bite the Mavericks, and it's going to be a travesty because. The, the, the Clippers are far from a certain thing. They've got the talent. I think they're the, the most deep team in the NBA. I think they will do it, but it's not as if they have been playing together all season long. It's been a bit of a mash unit there. They, they don't have, a, they're kind of still working on their chemistry. This was a moment for the Mavericks and they were kind of cheated out of it. Man, you, and the, the bad thing is there's no way you make up for it. You can't, you can't, you can't give them a moral victory. There's no, I mean, in a seven-game series or, a, or, you know, starting out at the very least a four-game series, you can't really make up for this kind of blown call if you're the NBA or if you're those referees. Uh, what was the worst? What was worse last night? The the criticism of Tatis or the ejection of Kristaps Porzingis? The final drive coming up next on Wilson and Parcel on Sports Radio FNC. Welcome back. It is the final segment of today's show. Big thanks to Brendan Marks and Cole Custer for joining us 
on today's show. Hopefully, Cole Custer breaks the Wilson and Parcel curse this weekend on uh, on the the double uh, double race weekend at Dover. I, I feel almost I almost feel bad about that. He's he's still making a lot of money and he's got a great life. But what I'm saying is I almost feel bad about cursing Cole Custer. Uh, for the last few weeks he's been on, it is time for the final drive with Josh Parcell. Tiger Woods was a heck of a golfer for a long time. He still Nailed is. It. Still a pretty good golfer. But did you know that there is another young Woods who is coming, and maybe he's coming for Tiger's throne, Charlie Woods, Tiger's 11-year-old son, won the U.S. Kids Golf event at Hammock Creek in Palm City, Florida over the weekend. The kid's 11 years old. He shot a three under 33. That is amazing for any person to shoot the three under 33, let alone an 11-year-old kid. And Tiger Woods was on the bag. Tiger Woods was his caddy. Can you imagine a better caddy than Tiger freaking Woods? How about that? Yeah, my dad's caddying for me. Oh, by the way, he's the greatest golfer of all time. And not only did he shoot a 33 to win, he won the event by five strokes in nine holes. That's like winning an 18-hole event by 10 strokes. He dominated the field. He's the next Tiger Woods. And don't take my word for it. Listen to Tiger talk about his son. He's starting to get into it. He's starting to understand how to play. He's asking me the, the right questions. I've kept it competitive with his par. And so it's been just an absolute blast to go out there and just, you know, be with him. And it reminds me of so much of, you know, me and my dad growing up. I wish I had his move. <laughs> I, I analyze the swing all, all the time. I, I, I wish I could rotate like that and turn my head like that and do some of those positions. But those days are long gone and I got to relive it through him. I don't know what it is about me. I think this stuff is really cool. Maybe I'm just getting a a little bit older now where the athletes that I grew up watching, all of a sudden they have a son or even a nephew or a relative, a descendant who is all of a sudden becoming a prodigy. He's not the only one. Charlie Woods is certainly poised, it seems like, to become a great golfer. Will he become a pro? I don't know. But he's certainly poised to become a great golfer. LeBron James Jr., is going to be a, a, a blue chip prospect in basketball. He was a standout freshman last year at Sierra Canyon in California. He's already getting compared to his dad. He'll never be his dad, but the fact that they're even remotely similar at the same age is a testament to Bronny. Arch Manning, I am irrationally excited for Arch Manning. He's Peyton's nephew. His dad is Cooper, the third Manning brother, who's a comedian for Fox Sports. And, uh, of course, a sad injury cost him his career, but wasn't the quarterback in the family. But his son, Arch, threw 20-some-odd touchdowns last year for uh, for a 6A school in Louisiana. He looks like Trevor Lawrence on the field. Like as a freshman, the kid looks like he's about he's going to be a five-star prospect. You've already got coaches in Louisiana saying he's better than Peyton was or Eli was at the same age. I don't know. I'm just a little bit older now. I wasn't old enough to appreciate you know Barry and Bobby Bonds or even Ken Griffey Jr. and Ken Griffey Sr. or uh, any other players who who had famous dads. Grant Hill, his dad, his dad was Calvin Hill, great Cowboys running back. But I'm really excited for the next generation of athletes and to see some of the the sons or the nephews of the stars that I grew up idolizing having their turn, whether it's Charlie Woods, Bronny James, or, or Arch Manning or whoever else, I can't wait to see it happen. It's a fun thing, and it's fun to be a, it's a fun time to be a sports fan with those guys on the rise. That is the final drive brought to you by Queen City Audio, Video, and Appliances, serving the Carolinas since 1952. 
At uh, no cap, Josh, that was on fleek. Uh, Charlie, Charlie Woods' is, uh, golf game is on fleek, and I'm proud to see it too. So who of those three guys, like who are you most excited for? Like, who, like, like if one of them became a great star in their sport, what would be the coolest story, do you think? Uh, for me, probably Bronny because of LeBron, because I, I grew up down the road and I got to see yeah. his career play out from 18, well, really, 15 years old up until today. Yeah, I mean, that the, the amount of pressure on Bronny, I mean, you, and LeBron has talked in the past about how he wishes he didn't give his son the same name because he feels like it put a lot of pressure on him. There is. I mean, when your name is LeBron James Jr., the spotlight is on you. But I'll tell you what. When your last name is Manning and you're growing up down in Louisiana playing quarterback, there's a lot of pressure on you, too. But when your last name is Woods on the golf course, I mean, all of these guys have so much to live up to. I think it will be really cool for Arch Manning just because not only is it Peyton, but it's Eli and it's Archie. I mean, that that is a, the royal family of quarterbacks. There is such a long lineage of those guys being great quarterbacks and arts kind of had an up and down career. He played in new Orleans, which was a, which was a disastrous franchise in the seventies. It was an awesome college quarterback, but I can't wait to see arch. Also, I can't wait for the recruiting battles. Bronny's probably going to go straight to the G league select team or straight to the NBA if he can. And you know, Charlie woods, that'd be really cool if he became a pro golfer, just the story of being tiger's kid, but arch Manning, I mean the, the the recruiting war that's going to take place between Tennessee, where Peyton played, Ole Miss, where his dad went, where his grandpa went, uh, where Eli went. Uh, you, uh, you have to imagine that. Oh, by the way, Lane Kiffin's at Ole Miss, which makes it even better. You have to imagine every school in the South, every school in the country is going to want him to come play for him. I, I can't wait to just, I, as a recruiting nut, I can't wait to see the battle for, for Arch Manning. It might be the most heated recruiting battle ever in football. I can't wait. Arch needs to troll everybody and go to Alabama. I wouldn't put it past him. I mean, think Do you about think it. Saban's already hit him up? I know he has. Think about it. You would troll not just your uncle and your, your dad and your grandpa, but then you would troll them perpetually because Alabama's just going to continue over time to be the blue blood of the SEC every time. If you win a national championship, uh, one, it, there you can just go ahead and you know brag right in your uncle's face about that. But then every national championship they win after that, even if you're into the NFL, you just call up your uncle and be like, I'm, I'm sorry, did your school just win the national championship? I, I would go to Alabama just for the bleep talking rights alone. That's true. I mean, Eli, Eli got to a Cotton Bowl, I think, his senior year. I think they played Oklahoma State, I think. Peyton never got, never won a national championship. Archie didn't either. That could be the difference. The wild card here would be Clemson. You could go, you could leave the SEC altogether, stay in the Southeast. But I, I already told you, I mean, it is really cool to go watch Arch Manning's clips because this kid is a freshman and he looks like he's ready to go play college ball. He just hit a growth spurt. So now he's, I think, like six foot three. I know way too much about this kid, but go watch his highlights. Go watch Arch Manning. It's really cool. It's just cool to see the, the next Manning. And as a 14-year-old kid, he's playing against Division One guys in Louisiana, and he's playing really well. He was legitimately good last year for them as a freshman. He looks like Trevor Lawrence. He even wears 16. He looks like Lawrence. He's a great, long, lanky athlete, fluid uh, arm. He's fun to watch. Go to Clemson. Clemson's recruiting every number one quarterback every single year, it feels like. Why not be the next one? Actually, what do you have? Do you think that would be worse if he went to the ACC? Just said, yeah, I don't want to stay in the SEC. Whether he went to Alabama or to LSU or... Everybody or, thinks he's going to go to an SEC school. I mean, the Mannings like, are the SEC. What if he went to an... Like, is that... No, I think the bigger... I think the biggest... The biggest bleep you to everyone involved would be Alabama. Yeah. 
I mean, because because the because then you go to the ACC. If you go to Clemson, like I can understand how there there'd be some of the bleep you to that, and like I want to create my own legacy. No, man, you go to Alabama, a a team that can continuously beat up on Tennessee, a team that continuously beats up on Ole Miss. Yeah, that's that's the biggest middle finger you can give if you're Arch. Mm. It would, it would be, it'd be kind of a cop out. I want to, it'd be cool if he went to Ole Miss. I just want to see Lane Kiffin being Lane Kiffin recruiting that kid. I can't wait. I can't wait for the, the, the gifts and the tweets that Lane's going to be dropping. It's every other day trying to keep, uh, you know, keep Lane Kiffin. Well, I guess not in the state, but in the family, that's going to be a lot of fun. I did that recruiting battle is going to be crazy at recruiting wars in the sec are already intense. You add on to the fact that it's now the next Manning kid and that the, the team where his dad played and basically all of his family, but Peyton is gone is the head coach is the most polarizing famous, uh, salacious head coach in the, in the conference, probably in the country too. I'm just, I'm very excited for that, but you know, like I'm with you too. I mean, Bronny would be an awesome story. And, you know, some people say that Bronny has, there are some skills that Bronny has now that are better than his dad's, but his dad was a once in a, in 10 generation athlete. And Bronny's a great athlete. It, nobody will ever be LeBron. So we'll see how that affects him moving forward, but I'm excited to watch him and heck, Watching Charlie Woods, I, I I didn't know even Charlie was that great of a golfer, but apparently he's already dominating like his dad used to do. So that's a fun one to keep an eye on too. All right, it's time to get to uh, this day's greatest of all time. The number series rolls on here. Who is the greatest player to ever wear the number sixty-seven? Some of the candidates here: Reggie McKenzie, a great uh, offensive lineman in the NFL; Bob Kuchenberg. Uh, former offensive line. There's just a, a less Richter. Okay. It's a lot of offensive linemen. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say, I'm going to go with, uh, with old Bob Kuchenberg there. Axel, what do you think? What's your take? One, I mean, are you saying that name right? Is it Kuchenberg? Really? Yeah. Gu- Kuchenberg? Kuchenberg, not Kuchenberg. Kuchenberg. Not Kuchenberg. It's like okay. a war hero. Yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, he's general Kuchenberg. I, I, I sure. I don't know. Uh, I'm going to go. So I'm looking at baseball guys and there's, there's nothing like the best number 67 of all time in baseball. Is this basically a participation trophy? Francisco Cordova. Okay. Who has a losing record in his career. But if the arm injuries weren't a problem, uh, one of the, the finest pitchers to come out of Mexico. That's true. It's true. I'll go Reggie McKenzie on this one. McKenzie, uh, what, played in the 80s? Yeah, was in the 80s. He had a he had two interceptions in his career. I'll nice. go Reggie McKenzie. I don't know, man. Six, we've, we're, we're hitting the, the weak numbers, man. Like, y'all got to start repping 67. Uh, you've got you've got to rep this because tomorrow we've got some guys like tomorrow. We're going to have a little bit more luck. 68 is a better number. But some of these mid 60s numbers, O linemen, step up, you know, choose your own path. Write your own book, man. Start. You you can be the first great 67. You just got to put your mind to it. This is we've hit some weak ones lately. Reggie McKenzie might be the worst. I won't stand for this Kuchenberg slander, who was a starting guard for 14 years in the NFL, six Pro Bowls. And he was part of the undefeated Dolphins. Th- and he had a brother oh. named Rudy Kuchenberg, too. There was two Reggie McKenzie. I knew that didn't seem right. Re- There's two Reggie McKenzies. The Reggie McKenzie, who wore 67, was an O-lineman 70s and 80s. 
I'll go with that Reggie McKenzie, who did not have any interceptions, but did have four fumble recoveries. I think you got to get your Reggie McKenzie straight next time. A little bit earlier, okay? Big miss on my part. Sorry (laughs) sorry to the other Reggie McKenzie. Big thanks to Brendan Marks again. Uh, Great job out of Hackshaw. We'll be back tomorrow from 2 to 7. Until then, Nick Wilson for Josh Parcell saying, stay safe and be good, Charlotte. Lord, I love you, Carolina. Hasta la vista, baby. Oh, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. See you later! Charmed, I'm sure. I'm reading the end of it, and that's all, folks. Okay, bye. Can't